But I pray that this song rightly puts our focus on you because we want this to be about you. And we're here to learn about you, your ways, your wonderful plan of salvation, the hope of your second coming. And we do pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Because we live in a lost and dying world that wants nothing to do with you. And we're here to be your ambassadors. To live lives that are so different and that point to you moment by moment that you are glorified. And may you be glorified in the preaching of the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, really it is uh, true that the um, the firstborn or the, the oldest child is the one that has the, the hardest of all the children because they bear the mistakes of new parents, okay? That was true for our son Jacob. Um, with all of the um, developmental delays being adopted from Russia, living on so such a small amount of food, the mother that smoked and drank while he was in the womb and all of that, um, and just the physical disabilities that he had and, and, and still has, um, you know, we held him to the same standard as the other kids. Um, and it is certainly is true that if you train a child up in the way that the child should go, that they will not depart from it. And we have seen that uh, for the most part uh, with our son Jacob. But make no mistake, Jacob was always in trouble with us, it seemed like. Now, I know that we're not the only one that's had a, a difficult child who also has a, a multiple children who has difficult children, okay? Yes, okay? Some of you in here, I'm a bet, were the difficult children, child, I bet, right? Um, some of my favorite, at the time not, but some of my favorite memories of my son is I remember one time... Um, you know, he just struggled with school, and it was at the start of every school year, there would, kids would come from school, and there was our other kids doing homework, and Jacob said he never had homework. So you're, you sure? So yeah, never had homework. That lasted about a month or six weeks until the first report card came in, and he was massively failing, and it turns out that we would later discover that there was homework and assignments hidden underneath the hutch, hidden underneath the couch, hidden in the, what? Between the mattresses. You name it, there was homework there. And then he was forever behind, and we would get him on his case on that one. As he got older, with all of the problems he was having, of course, he's in those special classes, and that's not necessarily the, the highest character quality child that's in, he would get in trouble. One time, though, he, he crossed the line. And he mouthed off to his teacher, and it was brought to my attention. Now, I was uh, not working at that time, and I reintroduced my son Jacob to the Board of Education <laughs> because I said, I can change the way you feel about that. And he came in, and I confronted him with the message I got, and of course, he was stubborn and uh, kind of pushing back. And I said, well, let's go. And he knew what that meant. 
And here's this, I don't know how old he was, 15 years old, 16 years old, whatever, and he was getting paddled with my dad's old fraternity paddle. We did a round of that, and I said, you know, not bruising or anything, but it definitely felt it, and he was like, unrepentant, would not change. And so I tried reasoning with him, because I didn't like doing this, right? No one does. No one likes disciplining their children. He wouldn't budge. So you know what I said? Let's go again. And I eventually, after the second time, slowly wore him down, but he still would not. In his heart, he said, well, Dad, I'm going to apologize, so I'm not going to mean it. It's all right. He apologized, got to dealt with. But the funniest memory was Jacob and all the trouble he got for stealing my Cokes. This is funny. We had in our garage a refrigerator, and it had, you know, the soda was in there. And the kids, we didn't want them having it, and it was really just for Erica and me, and primarily for me. And so I would kind of know what was in there, and my supplies kept getting smaller and smaller. So what's going on here? Are you giving it to your friends? Are your kids drinking it? They said no. All four of my kids said no. So eventually I found an occasional Coke can down in Jacob's bedroom. I said, where'd you get that from? Well, I got it from a neighbor, this and that, of course. Turns out that was a lie. And so this was this ongoing issue with Jacob taking, I mean, late at night, literally coming, like two or three in the morning, to the refrigerator, stealing these Cokes and going downstairs and secretly drinking them. When we moved from Indiana to here, do you know how many Coke cans we found in his room? He had them hidden in his Lego boxes. The Legos were put together. In those boxes were literally Coke cans. He had poster board from school that he had rolled up, like in a cylinder, that was filled <laughs> with Coke cans. They were underneath his bed, hidden in drawers. There must have been two dozen worth of Coke cans, that, and that's the only ones we could find. The other stuff that he had hidden, he had hidden them everywhere. <laughs> Jacob was always in trouble. It's apropos that we named him Jacob, I guess, because in the Bible, who else was in trouble a lot with God? Jacob. His name actually means, I think it means like devious or something like that. Oh, trickster. trickster, troubler of Israel. Yeah, anyways. So, that is uh, Jacob's trouble. Uh, God bless him. He is loyal to us. He has you know, grown up out of that, realizes the mistakes he made, and um, he's coming over to our house almost every night now when we don't want him to anymore because we don't want anyone else. So we want to be empty nesters as much as we can, but he's coming over all the time. Look, we're alone. It's quiet. All of a sudden we hear this engine. It's like, oh, Jacob's here. <laughs> no, we, we enjoy. He and I like watching um, Suits on Netflix. That, that, uh, anyways, one of the things that he and I can do to, to bond and we joke about it and so on. The other day, the night, he bought me some Grater's ice cream. I think I've mentioned it before, Grater's ice cream is very expensive, but it's like very well known out of Cincinnati, and it's actually it's Oprah Winfrey's favorite ice cream. It's that good. It's the best ice cream I've ever had. Um, and he bought me a pint and him a pint. It's like eight or nine bucks for a pint at the QFC there. He bought it for me and him. And so we're watching Suits up in our bonus room. and says, let's get our ice cream. 
and I think it was Wednesday, Wednesday night after the Bible study here. And once you get started in a pint with this stuff, it's hard to stop. And so we were just so, so tired that we got each of a pint down. And it got real quiet, and he looked at me, and he said, I feel sick. I looked at him and said, I feel sick too. <laughs> Don't move. Hopefully it'll pass. We'll watch the this episode, and then we'll go to bed. And we looked at each other as we were walking downstairs. We're like, I am never doing that again. <laughs> but, yes, till the next time. I said, David can do this. No problem. He downs a pint, and it's nothing for him. Anyways, back to the old thing with Jacob. In the Old Testament, and this is something that we need to be aware of, God foretold of an unparalleled time of trouble for Israel. And, of course, Israel is named also in the Bible, who? Jacob. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel, okay? So you guys got that? This time is characterized by birth pains, but followed by the return of scattered Jews to their homeland to serve the Lord and live in peace under a Davidic king. Okay, you guys with me? I'll give you a story to keep you awake here to start off with this. This won't be a long sermon. But you know what God called this period? The time of Jacob's trouble, or Jacob's sorrow, or Jacob's distress. So we're going to talk about Jacob's trouble this morning, okay? And so... Turning your Bibles to Jeremiah, okay? Okay. Jeremiah chapter 30. The verse I put up right here, but we'll go through briefly this chapter. This is Jacob's trouble. This is the verse that talks about this. It says, Alas, God is speaking to Jacob. For that day is great. So there is a day, not a specific 24-hour day, but a period of time that is great. And in fact, it's utterly unique. There is none like it. Okay? It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So God has spoken through Jeremiah that there's a future time coming called Jacob's trouble from the Old Testament. Now, what exactly is Jacob's trouble? And what does Jeremiah tell us about this unprecedented time? Is everyone there in Jeremiah chapter 30? Okay, starting in verse 3, okay. It says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Now, why Israel and Judah? Because what happened? The kingdom divided, okay? The Lord says, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. So verse 3 reveals a promise from God that one day in the future, God will bring both Judah and Israel back to the land he had promised their forefathers. And by the way, just so you know, this little extra tidbit of information here. When Daniel read Jeremiah and saw that the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity were coming to an end, he assumed, the great Daniel the prophet assumed that there would be a, a return to Jerusalem and a rebuilding of the, the city and the walls and the temple and everything, based upon what? The Mosaic Covenant, right? Did that happen? God tells him it would, but it's thousands of thousands of years later. 
So even someone that is highly esteemed as Daniel doesn't always get what the Lord is doing. Okay? Now, verse 4. Now there are the, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror. And this is not fun, reading this part. But I've heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. So verses 4 through 5 describe Jacob's trouble as a time of what? It's great fear and dread. In this time, there is no peace. Well, just how terrorizing, how fearful, how dreadful will this time of Jacob's trouble be? Well, verse 6 provides the answer. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Well, if I ask now, in 2023, there are enough deluded people to think that men can give birth. Let's just call it what it is. Those people have a mental illness and they need medication. Okay? And I, I don't say that to make fun of them. I'm not. Because I witnessed firsthand a young lady go into a mental illness, seeing things that weren't there. Her life was almost destroyed, but li thankfully she got lithium. Okay? And because we're brought back to reality. Okay? Now, so can a male give birth? Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? That's verse 6. Now, obviously, a male cannot give birth. So why does God ask this question? Because this time, or the time of Jacob's trouble, is so terrorizing that men are overcome with dread. Every man is bent over in fear as if he is a woman giving birth. Now, men, husbands, if you've ever been with your wife while she's giving birth, it's not a fun time, is it? To watch someone get, be in so much pain to give birth to something so beautiful is amazing, but it clearly is not fun for the mother. And it's as if God puts a, 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 a covering of stupidity over husbands because they ask questions in pain and we don't know how to answer them. And ultimately, you know, we're not giving comfort to our wives and we're just giving ammunition for them to bring back to us all the rest of the years of marriage. That you said this when I was in labor. Remember that? I thought I was doing the nicest thing and she still brings up stuff that I said. But the point being is that it is so painful to watch that. Now, you can imagine it's so dreadful, so terrorizing, so fearful that men are like women in the pain of childbirth. Okay? They're overcome with dread. Not only that, in agony, every man's face, it says, is what? It's turned pale. White as a sheet. We would use the phrase, you look like a ghost. Okay? Why? Because of the overwhelming dread and fear and anticipation of not only what has happened, but in anticipation of what is going to happen. Thus, verse 7, alas, for that day is great. Now we're getting a picture here. This is a great day. You could say it's a unique day because none is like it. And it's called Jacob's trouble. Thankfully, he shall be saved out of it. 
But this time is so unique that none is like it in all of human history. That's the point. But again, despite all the terror, all of the dread, it's also a time of hope because Jacob will be saved out of it. And God will deliver his people. And here is how this deliverance is described, verses 10 and 11. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. And that is a key thing to remember. Completely. So there is going to be some suffering for the people of Israel. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So there's hope, but there's still a purging, a discipline that goes on. So first, how is this deliverance described? First, Israel is to put away fear and dismay because she and her offspring will be saved by the Lord. Second, they will once again know peace and rest. Now, it's one thing to be struggle with fear and anxiety. But you want to know when you really know peace? is when you come out of fear or anxiety and you have a sense of peace. That's when you really appreciate peace because that has been so foreign to you during that time. We have all experienced that, right? So what a wonderful thing to know peace. And peace really is, if it's the true peace, it's a rest. You can let your guard down. You're at peace. Third, the Lord says he will destroy the nations who held Judah and Israel in captivity, and he will never again allow Jacob to be completely destroyed. However, this dis deliverance is also a time of just discipline for Israel. She will not go unpunished, meaning there's a continual purification process that she is going through. When did this purifying, this discipline happen? Well, probably 605 B.C. What happened then? Jerusalem fell, the Babylonian captivity. Okay? From that point on, up until roughly, you could say, I guess, 1948, what happened in 1948? Israel was, got her land back, but she still is under threat. But all those years, Israel was under Gentile oppression. It's a purification process. So there's a future purification process that's going to happen. Well, when will this happen? Well, we're going to answer that question a little bit later in the sermon, but we're going to talk about perilous times. This is uh, what we'll spend the rest of our time on this morning. So go to Matthew chapter 24. We'll finish verses 16 through 28. We'll fly through those uh, this morning. As you're going there, you may recall that last week we concluded our study on the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15. Our Lord warns us of perilous times that follow in verses 16 through 28. We're going to take a closer look at them this morning. Now again, the event that triggers Jacob's trouble is the abomination of desolation. 
based on the prophecies of Daniel 9, 11, and 12, in the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 15, and Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, and we went through all of those, theologians predict that in the last days, or the time of the end, um, some form of a world leader will arise and put an end to war, probably in the Middle East, and broker peace with Israel. Now, I'm giving this to you from a, a dispensational perspective, okay? I've been to this before with you guys. After three and a half years, because again, it was my understanding that there would be no math, right? Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, no math. We're going to be looking at some math, some specific times here, and this is what the dispensationalists put out, and I'm putting it here because it gives you a specific time frame. It's easy to understand in some ways. After three and a half years during this seven-year period, what's going to happen? The abomination of desolation. Man's true nature, this man's true nature will be revealed. An image of himself will be erected, and he will demand to be worshipped as God. Now, you might remember last week, who did we talk about? Who was the guy that we talked about? Antiochus Epiphanes, remember him? That was last week, right? Yeah. He's a picture or a preview of a future world ruler. And what did he do in 168 BC? Well, in a fit of rage after being defeated in battle, he went back through Israel on his way up to the northern part of Syria and just desecrated the temple, killed thousands and thousands of people, set up a statue of Zeus, claimed that he was the Zeus God himself incarnate and demanded to be worshipped. He slaughtered pigs. He forced the, the, the pork down the meat of the priests and so on. That made the temple you know, unclean, and that was an abomination that causes desolation. That happened in 168 B.C. That's a picture of what we believe will happen in the future with a future Antichrist, this world ruler, Okay? This is the abomination of desolation we talked about last week. After this event, Jesus shares with us the following in verses 16 through 28 of Matthew. And the first word in chapter 6, verse 16, is then, which is a reference to time. So after this abomination of desolation, then he tells us to do the following. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak, but woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's look at verse 16 real quick. We'll look at this verse by verse and, we, and finish up the sermon this morning. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Well, why? Why would Jesus say that? 
Well, the mountains in the Judean region are literally littered with caves. This is where David would hide. He's on the run from Saul. Well, what is about it, what is about to happen is so bad, Jesus is telling us in advance, flee to the mountains, hide, okay? You need to be hidden. Verse 17, whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. This command to flee is so urgent that you drop everything you're doing. I mean, it's going to get that bad. Whether relaxing in a housetop or working hard, he says, run for cover. Don't take time to obtain provisions from your homes. Verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. The journey is only urgent, it's also difficult. So that those who are pregnant or nursing will be at a disadvantage. You should pray for good weather, as bad weather will only slow you down. Well, why the urgency? Look at verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, why did Jesus choose to use the phrase, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will? Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because it comes from two places from the Old Testament. This is a reference to the time of Jacob's trouble, See how that day is great, so that none is like it. It's also found in Daniel. Last week, we studied the abomination of desolation in reference to a historical figure, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's found in Daniel 11, 21 through 35. In verses 36 through 45, we read of a description of a future world leader. Okay? By the way, you know, when we went through that sermon last week, I could take you through all the battles that took place, verses 20 and 35, and we have historical books and records that, that authenticate that. In verses 36 to 45, the battles that take place, there is no historical record of these. That's why we believe it's talking about a future time, okay? He comes, this person comes in power, and he eventually meets his demise. That's what verses 36 to 45 tell us. Daniel chapter 12 continues the discussion of the time of the end and speaks of an unparalleled time of distress. I think I put this verse up here. Yes, here we go. You don't have to go to Daniel. It says, now at that time, Michael, and who's Michael? One of the archangels. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people the people being who? He's speaking to Daniel, so it'll be the people of Israel, okay? Will arise. Watch this. And there will be what? A time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This is what Jesus is referring to. This is why he quotes this in essence. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Now, obviously, the the book of life will be opened at the very end, and so we know this is talking about a future 
end time after his second coming when he judges everybody. Okay? Now, so I said earlier we would answer the question, when will the time of Jacob's trouble be? Well, theologians believe the only time period that fits this description in Jeremiah 37, verse 7, in Daniel 12, and so on, is the time right before the second coming of Christ or the time of tribulation. This time is unparalleled in history. And since Jesus quotes both Jeremiah and Daniel in Matthew 24, 21, it seems obvious this is the time. Let me give you a little more information to prove my point. I'm going to clarify the difference between tribulation and great tribulation. Now, the word tribulation can also be translated distress and also can be translated trouble. Okay? So Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, can also be translated Jacob's tribulation. This is one reason why theologians connect Jeremiah 30, verse 7, and Matthew 24, 21. In Matthew 24, 8, listen to this. Since you're there, you can look there in your Bibles. Jesus referenced, referred to Jacob's trouble as birth pains. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. He's talking about in this chapter about the tribulation. But here's the thing. The word birth pains is also translated sorrows. Did you know that? Yeah. So all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, why would it be translated sorrows? Well, isn't giving birth a time to rejoice? Well, sure, the birth of a child is a time for rejoicing. But the birth pains Jesus is referring to lead to an event so dreadful, i.e. the great tribulation, that it was indeed a time for sorrow. Because what these birth pains would produce is great tribulation. So the beginning of birth pains, referenced in Matthew 24, 8, and it's described by what? The false Christs, the wars, the natural disasters, the persecutions, the apostasies, that worldwide gospel proclamation. Everything found in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14. Remember we went over those? Here's the point. They are different than the ones described in the Great Tribulation. How are they different? Well, they differ in intensity. The word translated great, you see, emphasizes the intensity of the trouble. And this leads theologians to the conclusion that the first part of the Tribulation, or of Jacob's trouble, will be characterized by the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pains. Again, Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14. The concept of great tribulation in verse 21 means the second part will be characterized by the intense, hard labor birth pains. This time of Jacob's trouble, or great tribulation, is so unique that Jesus used in verse 21 a double negative to emphasize the impossibility of any other time equaling the intense distress of that time. He understands more in a moment here. But this timeline, so I update this timeline for you. You might recognize this, okay? Again, I'm coming to you from a dispensational perspective because it makes for an easier timeline for you to understand. 
So I added the fact that if you are a dispensationalist, you believe that a rapture, and this is where the rapture occurred, and here's the verses. Okay? This is Daniel's 70th week, the last seven-year period, and they believe it's divided this way. But here's my point. This is where this happened. The first three and a half years, these things happened. Then the abomination that causes desolation. Then the intense, hard labor pains right here. In other words, all the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are happening at this time right here. They're described in Revelation 6 through 16. Okay? So we differentiate between tribulation and great tribulation. Now, how bad will Jacob's trouble be? Well, the book of Revelation describes the final time of human history with terms that we've, we've gone over, but they're just beyond our imagination to even grasp. Real briefly, the apostle Paul, John sees in the vision the revelation of Jesus Christ, the falling elements to that time. There is war and famine that results in 25% of the world killed. This is happening again, the great tribulation, those last three and a half years from a dispensational perspective. There's the collapse of the heavenly bodies. We'll get into that in a moment. One third of the earth is destroyed. One third of the sea is destroyed, meaning the creatures in it and the ships that are on it. One-third of the fresh water and many multitudes of people who drink it die. One-third of the sky lights, the stars, gone. The release of hell's demons to overrun the earth. The slaughtering of the beast and the false prophet consummates their evil, vile ministry that goes on during that time. Their body soars all over men. Everyone in the sea and all living creatures in the sea are killed. All fresh water is polluted. Scorching sunlight burn people to death. Darkness covers the earth. God is allowing the Antichrist to oppress Israel in a final act of purging for their unbelief. So there awaits a very special distress that is without equal in human history. That's why it's called Jacob's trouble. That's why it's called Jacob's sorrow. What that will give birth to is, is unimaginable. We just simply don't like to think about it. Look at verse 22 now. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now what does it mean, the days are cut short? Well, the Greek word there for short could mean it stopped instantly. Meaning it was just immediately terminated even the elect would be destroyed. If it wasn't immediately stopped, even the elect would be destroyed. And that's one interpretation of that phrase, but I think there's a better explanation for that. It says those days. Now, if those days refer to a 24-hour day, then it could be translated unless those 24-hour days were shortened. You see? Now, does the Bible support such a translation? Well, here we go. What does this say? Revelation 6, 12 through 13. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became what? Black as sackcloth. Why in the world after earthquake would the sun become black as sackcloth? My guess is this great earthquake and the amount of debris and, and volcanoes and that, it just, the sun became black. 
In fact, the full moon became like blood. You've seen smoke here, right? What does the sun look like during those times? It changes color, right? Exactly. And the stars of the sky, what? Fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So the first set of judgments we know are the seal judgments. And what we read here basically is an alteration of the heavenly bodies. When the sun becomes black, what happens? It gets dark. In fact, if the sun is black, then the moon is out. And the moon will be a different, will not be as bright as it normally would be. On top of that, what, what else has happened? Stars are falling from the sky. So it's, it, it's getting darker and darker. Revelation 8.12 says this, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So a third of their light might be darkened. So in other words, what does that mean? Well, I'll explain it in a moment here. And a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. The second set of judgments, the trumpet judgments. Daylight will be reduced by a third. That means we're looking at eight hours from sunrise to sunset. So when the sun rises, is it very bright? And when the sun sets, it's not very bright, right? So minimum amount of, of, of daylight. Chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. But the kingdom was what? Plunged into darkness. You see that? So based on these three sets of verses, one possible interpretation, I believe, is gradually less and less daylight until ultimately, in a day, until ultimately at the end of the tribulation period, so we're talking right before his second coming, it's what? Darkness. It's total darkness. And I believe, and I read this, and I think it makes sense, this may be a form of protection for God's people, the elect. Because remember, they're being persecuted. But they're harder to find because they're hiding under the guise of darkness now. Try finding something in the day versus something at night. Much more difficult, right? And so it's only the protection of night and daylight being shut off that saves people. And so the Lord goes to these extremes. This is the point I want you to see out of this, to protect his own. He even changes the function of the universe for the sake of the elect. This is a comforting thought during a very, very painful time. Matthew 24, verse 23 through 26. That if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. You see, people in great desperation are extremely vulnerable. These false Christs and prophets 
They're not deceiving people to provide hope. They are deceiving, using hope in order to capture and kill all those who are fleeing and hiding, waiting for their Messiah. And the power given to them, these false Christs and prophets, to perform great signs and wonders will indeed be very, very impressive to the point that if possible, and it's not possible, but if possible, even the elect could be deceived. But the elect are protected. They cannot be deceived, and they cannot be destroyed because the sovereignty of God protects them by reorganizing the universe to create constant darkness, and they cannot be deceived because they have in them the knowledge of the true Christ. And the scriptures tell us they're protected by the power of God. God in his mercy, he is so good, has warned his people in advance of all of this. He told them in Matthew chapter 7, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 23, and Matthew 24 now. I mean, what a wonderfully good God we serve. But how will we know then when Jesus returns? If all these false Christs and prophets are coming up performing these great signs, they're going to be easy to believe. And aren't these signs going to prove that they're authentic? I mean, how are we going to know? Well, that's verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. His coming will be sudden, it will be public, it will be visible, it will be universal, it will be glorious. Nobody will miss lightning that streaks across the sky from the east to west. Well, why not? Because right now there's lightning storms going on somewhere in the United States, let's say in the Midwest or in the east. Do we see any lightning? No, we do not. But the lack of sunlight, okay, it's completely dark at this point in time when he comes again. Light shines its brightest in darkness. This is why in Revelation 1-7 it says, every eye will see him. If it's completely dark and you're seeing a, a, ma a massive lightning storm, you're going to see it everywhere. So no one will miss him. And not only will every eye see him, every ear will hear him, because Revelation 19 tells us that he comes with a blasting sound of the trumpet. It will be unmistakably obvious he is coming. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So when Jesus, what he finds when he returns to his creation, okay, beautiful creation, he finds a wretched, sinful, corrupt, dying planet. It's compared to a dead and decaying carcass. You see what's happened is the lack of sunlight has done what? It's killed off most of the vegetation. The great earthquake, meaning the earth is ruptured, torn open from earthquakes. Famine would be rampant. And then when there's famine, what's, what ultimately always follows? Wars, disease, and pestilence, and wars that will ravage the population. At this time as well, there's already a war taking place amongst the nations. It's called what? The Battle of Armageddon. This is when he arrives and he ends it all. 
there are, with the Battle of Armageddon taking place, there's countless dead bodies. And guess what they're attracting? Vultures. We know that sin at this point in time is running unchecked. Lawlessness increases, Matthew 24, 12. I haven't gone here to talk about this because it's difficult to explain, but there is a restraining power that is removed. It's talked about. People believe it's probably the Holy Spirit. Some say it's the church. I don't believe the church is raptured, but either way, the, the restraining Holy Spirit, his power has been pulled back. He's still moving in the lives of people, but to restrain sin, that's been pulled back. Thus, lawlessness increases. We would say now, if there's any other time in history that this phrase would be true, it would be right now, all hell has broken loose. The sheer amount of wickedness and immorality and corruption and death, I think, is going to be staggering. And Christ comes in judgment as a vulture, tearing into a carcass. I think this is what Paul had in mind. We'll close with this verse right here. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He is coming by the way, it sees here that, yeah, God is a just God. He wants you to know justice, those who afflict you. He wants you to give you relief to your afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. By the way, he's coming again. This is next week. We'll talk about his second coming. If it's dark and angels are coming in flaming fire, that's going to give up a whole heck of a lot of light not to talk about the Shekinah glory, whom he is, the very essence of light, it will be almost blinding. Yes, every eye will see, okay? Against a dark background. And what's he coming for? To deal out retribution. Those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, you know, I've gone through all of this stuff, and it is confusing, is it not? Yes, it is. It is a little bit overwhelming, isn't it? And I told you that even the eschatology of the you know, early Christians and of the Jews was, was wrong. Okay. How do we keep this stuff kind of in the forefront of our minds? Well, you pray for his return. That's how you can, one of the ways you can stay ready. We're told to pray for his return. The Bible ends with what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Pray for his second coming. So, now... Obviously, if you are a, just to give you a little bit of clarity, this might help a little bit, if you believe in a dispensational eschatology, and there are good minds that do that, okay, this time right here, there will be a secret rapture, you won't have to worry about any of this stuff, and you will come back with him. If you don't believe that, which is what the history of the church has primarily been, then you take this out. You take this stuff out too, this year time frame. There will still be a tribulation and a great tribulation, probably an abomination that causes desolation. What those are, we don't know, but there will be, you will be going through this stuff. Now, is it impossible to believe that anyone could survive all of that? What does the scriptures tell us? Yeah, you can. Some are going to be hiding. It doesn't mean some of you may die, but you won't die in vain. Some of you will get through it. And when he comes again here, for those that are what? What did he say will happen to you? You will be caught up in the air to meet him, and then you will return with him. Okay? 
So either you go through the bad stuff or you don't. If you go through it, you're still protected through it. You do not suffer his wrath. Okay? That's very clear. But anyways, it is good to just be reminded that this is what the future holds. And he'll be unmistakable, as we talk about next week, when he comes again. And it will be glorious. And it will be powerful. Okay? And I'll explain to you in great detail what that will look like. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We're learning about the Word of God and about your coming. And we're reminded to be ready. And I pray that we would take to heart the application point, that we would add to our prayers just a, a, a prayer that you would come again soon. We know that your patience is running thin, that you have stayed your wrath and your, your justice and your holiness, but it's like the ocean that is beating on a rock, and it will wear, eventually wear down the rock of your love and patience and kindness, and then judgment will come. But we thank you that those of us who are your children, who you see in Christ, who when you look at us, you see the righteousness of Christ, you see perfection, that we are not appointed to your wrath. And for that we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. All right. We're not going to close with a song. It's moving over. So have a great day. Enjoy Labor Day. I don't work. We're called Labor Day. It's a big day off day, right? You don't go to work, hopefully. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday with your tailgate, your jerseys on, all your sports stuff on, okay? All right.